0: invite you to come with me to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our study through this pretty remarkable chapter and the theme has been the heroes of faith. We have to be careful when we say heroes that we don't turn these people into some kind of anything other than flesh and blood people just like us though. Really it's God who's the hero in all of the story. Uh, it's, It's their faith that makes them experience God's power and purposes in the remarkable ways that this chapter describes. But as it came to be uh, my turn to speak from this chapter and to think about Hebrews 11, I thought it would be helpful to kind of uh, focus as it does on living the life of faith and to sort of see where chapter 11 fits in the entire argument, so to speak, the entire purpose of this epistle. This 13 chapters. The letter to the Hebrews was written to, an ex- to exhort and to encourage these Hebrew Christians, that is, these Christians who were Jewish and now have converted to Christianity, not to defect from authentic Christianity, true faith in God, by settling back into a form of blended Judaism that would have been acceptable to society around them, and thus saved them from the persecution that they were currently experiencing. As we've talked about before, Judaism was considered a legal religion in the Roman Empire. So if you were a Jew, people might think it was a little odd, it might think it was a little strange, but it was sort of okay. But when it became clearer and clearer that Christianity wasn't the old Judaism that was rejecting Jesus as Messiah, and that it was a different religion altogether, really. Uh, It was truly the fulfillment of the Old Testament faith, but not the Jewishness, not the Judaism that was prevalent in the Roman Empire now. And when the Jewish leaders themselves, the synagogue leaders in the various locations, started to harass and persecute the Christians, then the pagans around them gladly and eagerly joined in for a whole host of reasons. And so these Jewish Christians were now tempted, let's go back. Let's retreat. Maybe not in all ways, but in key ways, let's just sort of mute our devotion to Jesus as Messiah and let people just kind of count us as Jews after all. In other words, Let us customize our religion and our spirituality in a way that will be okay with the world around us. And even more deeply, what was really going on, Satan was tempting them to go to a kind of spirituality that was okay with the world and okay with him. And Hebrews, is writing, to remind them to insist and to say, we don't get to determine, we don't get to decide on our own terms what real faith and faithfulness towards God is. We don't get to customize our allegiance and spirituality in the ways that we want to, God is a certain way, and he, through his word, has described what it means to be truly devoted to him, truly loyal to him. That's really what's at stake in this epistle, in this letter. Maintaining and persevering in true faith and faithfulness towards the true and living God. So, that's where Hebrews 11 fits in Hebrews. The letter itself fits in to the entire message of the Bible which, if I could summarize it in one phrase that's just been helpful to me and kind of compelling to me lately, it is that we human beings are supposed to treat God like God. Treat God as God. We are to live devotedly In every aspect of life for his glory. Now I know in a certain sense that sounds simple and obvious, but I think it's something that we need to keep coming back to and keep sort of searching our actual lives and hearts and experiences to make sure that's our real and lived out goal. And so I wanted to start with a big picture summary of the Bible's message centered on this crucial reality of faith. Or to say it another way, I wanted to start because when it comes to living as a human being, when it comes to religion, when it comes to our true biblical Christianity, if the foundations aren't rightly in place, then nothing that's supposed to be built after them. No way of ministering, no way of worshiping, no way of serving, no way of even understanding individual passages can work if the fundamental realities of what religion, our Christian religion is supposed to be about, aren't firmly and accurately in place. So I want to step back and, and sort of assume nothing and start further back still than where we often start. And so that's why at the essence of the message, at least the first part of it is, this five fundamentals of living the life of faith in God. And so we'll go through them. There are some uh, printed out copies at the welcome desk if you want to take them with you, and it'll be on the church website uh, later that just because it would maybe be hard to copy them down as you go. But hopefully they'll be clear enough as we go that they'll sort of fix in your mind and you can be reminded of them later. First of all then, true faith in God believes in the true and living God, that is, God as he really is. Now again, I hope that's obvious, and probably to most in the room, it is in this particular room this morning. That real faith in God can only be genuine when it's believing in God as he really is, not a God of our own making. We can't image God any way that we want to, the Bible says. He's imaged himself in his word and in his actions that are described in his word. So that's the first one, and we'll come back to it briefly. Secondly, and first I'll say them all together, I guess. True faith believes that God is indeed the supreme being. That means God is the person who should be supremely feared, revered, trusted, loved, and obeyed really and truly in our lives. True faith believes what the Word of God centered in the gospel teaches about how we come to be right with God. True faith believes that God can only be rightly trusted, loved, obeyed, and served in accordance with his word. And then finally, and this is something that is the focus of the section from Hebrews that we'll focus on, true faith believes what the word of God teaches about God's sovereign plan and providential purpose for the world, the church, and the individual believer. So, the first one again. Contrary to the common and exceedingly popular idea, we're not free to make God up on our own. And again, I hope in one sense that's obvious, but let's admit it, we live in a time when people are self-identifying about everything. They're redefining what they are as human beings. And the physical, actual, biological realities don't even determine it's sort of whatever I am inside here. It doesn't matter what I am out here. It's whatever I am in my own psyche. That's my identity. Well, we've been doing that to God for a long time. It's however we really want to conceive of Him. And if you're sincere and harmless to others, then that's all that really matters. But if you think about it, it's ridiculous. If there is a God, and there is, then he is the way that he is. He's not the way we imagine him or conceive him to be. So that's a simple one, but it's absolutely foundational. God is what he is. That's one of the basic names of his name, Yahweh. I am who I am. Exodus chapter 3. Secondly, True faith believes that God is indeed the supreme being. And there again, it's like, of course he's the supreme being. But I say that if he's the supreme being, then that means that anyone who believes in him and wants to engage with him will treat him that way. He will be supreme in what you revere. He will be supreme in what you love, in what you trust. He will be the supreme object of your devotion. And he will be the supreme authority in your life. So just recognize that as the Bible says in place after place, that that as it says in Colossians 1, Jesus Christ in everything will have the supremacy, will have first place. Given who God is, His majesty, His holiness, His authority, His power, His goodness, love, and faithfulness that are infinite and perfect, He should always and only be regarded and related to as such. In other words, we are to treat God as God. We are to treat Jesus as Lord and give Him first place, the supremacy in everything. The first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You've got other relationships. You've got other responsibilities. You've got other callings. But none of them ever are to come before your allegiance, your loyalty, your living out, your love and devotion to God. He's the supreme being. Psalm 95 3 said, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all the gods. And of course the Bible knows there aren't actually other gods, but we live like there are all the time. Cultures always have, and our cultures do. And just because we no longer represent them by metal or wooden figurines, we know for sure there are other gods. There are other things that claim our supreme allegiance and devotion and love and dependence and trust. Real faith can't possibly work and can't possibly save and connect us to God until we recognize He is the supreme being. Nothing else is real and true. Ascribe to the Lord, Psalm 29 says, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord, acknowledge His glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of do his name. His name is self-disclosure. If I ascribe to the Lord a glory deficient, defective, lower than who he actually is and what he actually is, then it isn't real and genuine faith. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 27, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. Who brings out the starry host one by one. We know more and more about how much starry host there is up there than Isaiah ever did. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That's just one of the fascinating examples from creation that the Bible gives to illustrate what kind of being we're talking about who names and directs every single star and whose sovereignty superintends and controls every single star. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is the supreme being. It is monstrous folly when we begin to regard anyone, anything else, as anywhere comparable to him in our actual interest, devotion. We should be enamored with him. We should be amazed in awe, truly in awe of this being this infinite, personal God. And true faith recognizes God for his greatness and believes that he should be supremely feared, trusted, loved, and obeyed. Let me again try to be practical. All of us can be tempted to try to use God to some greater end. Some people want to use God so that your kids will turn out right. That's really mainly what your interest in religion is focused on. Some people want to use God so that there will be that extra little advantage in business. Some want to use God for career purposes and to kind of advance our own self-esteem and self-regard. All of those, anytime. We use God as a means to anything else higher, it's a total distortion and a total corruption. Real faith recognizes God is supreme and incomparably so. And I just want to say it again. If we don't have these things basically in place, nothing down the road in our religion or Christianity really works or is really valid. True faith believes that God is the supreme being. True faith believes, third, what the Word of God centered in the Gospel teaches about how we come to be right with God. The way of salvation. And this message isn't devoted to that this morning, so I'll only remind of one passage. You couldn't possibly now approach this holy God as a, sinful creature that we all are on your own merits or by your own works. If ever we're going to be saved from being dead in trespasses and sins, and that's our natural condition, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It is according to the verses 8 and following. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. But then lest we think that coming to this God by grace alone and being saved by faith alone leaves us just the way we were, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. True faith realizes that's the way of salvation. But then, fourth, and this one is the one I think that in many ways, along with the next one, we most need to be attentive to. True faith believes that this God, the supreme God, can only be rightly trusted, loved, obeyed, and served in accordance with his infallible inscripturated word. Now again, at first, I think most would nod at that. In other words, we're not to imagine, we're not to just use our own intuition and to guess what kind of life is pleasing to him in every sphere. What kind of way of being spiritual in religion. We don't get that right. Even once we're stayed, we're still filled with the innate folly that we started with as human beings. And it takes a long time for all the misbeliefs, all the lies that we believed about God to be uprooted, to be replaced. And so, imitating our Lord Jesus himself, who again in the crucible of temptation himself to defect from allegiance to God, but he quoted scripture He didn't get some fresh revelation from God. He quoted the scripture he had memorized and refuted Satan's intentions for him by saying, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Passage after passage tells us that, teaches that. That it is only by living according to the Word of God that we really live rightly in relationship to this God that we've recognized as supreme. If I don't give any example, there's less possibility, I think, of wrestling with its application. And so, even though I've mentioned it before, Exhibit A for me of this trend has to do once again with how we think of and put into practice worship. More specifically, the continuing man-centered, pleasure-driven concertization of so-called evangelical Christianity and especially what is regarded as worship. More and more, when Christians gather, and it's affecting all ages, it seems that the values of performance and production tied to entertainment are crowding out our historic, we're Bible-believing churches' commitment to proclamation and teaching aimed at edification. That is, so that we'll continue to live out our allegiance to this being we've recognized as supreme to strengthening one another in our lived-out devotion, to treating God as God and Jesus as Lord in every area of life. In these gatherings, according to the New Testament, music as congregational singing plays a crucial role. But even in the singing, it's viewed as one of the ways we minister God's Word to one another, admonishing and teaching one another with all wisdom. The concertization of our spirituality. Now when there are Christian festivals, you know what that's code for. It's going to be another concert. These are serious trends, recognized and warned against from a whole range of Christian leaders. John Piper to David Platt. Don Carson to Francis Chan. And people whose ministry focus is worship music for the church, like Bob Coughlin, and Keith Getty. They're marks of a decline so prevalent and popular that they are regularly the target of satirical but seriously intended posts from someplace like the Babylon Bee. And I'm not talking about a difference between so-called and contemporary and traditional services. For the God-shrinking, entertainment-driven, creature-comfort-dominated man-centeredness can and too often characterizes both styles, or all kinds of styles. Why do we gather? Hebrews 10 goes a long way in answering that question in a passage that we know fairly well, Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer says, Let us, in verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised us faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting, gathering together, as is some in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. What is that telling us? The reason that we gather fundamentally as church is to reinforce us and to reinvigorate us when it comes to living out the allegiance we've been talking about so far, about treating God as supreme in every area of life. Your real ultimate worship is the spiritual service you do as family member, as worker, as citizen in the community, as witness for God, in living in devotion to Him the rest of the week. And we gather because the world keeps pushing the other way and it wants you to be mainly preoccupied with self and pleasure. And the world keeps catechizing you and your children. No wonder the writer to Hebrews says, Edify or um, uh, uh, admonish one another every day. You know, in the Bible, they met every day one way or another. Why? Because in their experience, if they were really going to stay true, not to just a kind of a nominal religion that was okay with Satan and society, but if they were really going to stay true to living out lordship to Jesus Christ, they were going to have to keep pushing back every day from letting the world squeeze them into its mold. And so every day in one sense or another, they needed to speak the word of God to one another the gospel of God needed to keep reminding them of these ultimate realities, that God is the supreme being and the only way to live the real life of faith is to treat him that way, day by day. I just cite that one thing as an example because it seems to be an area that's resistant to correction and reformation by the word of God. Because Bible teachers are teaching about it. And yet the trend remains so strong. So I'll leave it here for now. But I want to say to you that real faith recognizes that if you are going to treat God as God, you're going to do so by living by His Word. Hebrews 1 starts with, God has spoken. And the real believer listens and lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But then finally, the fifth one, and this is the one that relates to the specific passage in Hebrews. And this is the one that honestly in my own life and in pastoral care, it seems like confusion here really Hurts us and undermines our love and confidence in God the most. So true faith believes what the Word of God teaches about His sovereign plan and providential purpose for the world, the church, and the individual believer. And I know that's a mouthful, but hopefully as we go through this passage, you'll see what I mean. Pastor Keith last time took us through verses 8 and following. Just want to read those, get a little momentum from those, and continue on as we finish this last point. In the great record and chronicle of the people of faith, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land. And that at first sounds like That's life now, like Mr. Osteen says. But keep reading. Like a stranger in a foreign country, Abraham, favored man of God, of man of faith, shows up in Canaan, and he lives like a refugee. He lived in tents, and so did Isaac. And so did Jacob, who were heirs with them of the same promise. Have you ever noticed that? You know, to be honest, I only noticed this relatively recently as long as I've been studying the Bible. I sort of thought, God said, okay, Abraham, Canaan's yours. Go get Canaan. Go claim Canaan. Abraham goes, and he has a wonderful life in Canaan. No. It is the land of the promise, but the timing of fulfillment was probably a surprise to Abraham and his son, and his grandson. And so that's how they lived out their life. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so he goes on and he talks about Sarah too. So he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. And the promises of covenant blessing, ultimate blessing, that God would give to them. But then, verse 13, all these people, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, were still living by faith when they died. Another translation puts it, all these died in faith without having received the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Confessing, NIV has admitting, but it, it's a stronger word that Confessing, it was part of their creed. They were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were refugees living in tents in the promised land. And then the writer goes on to say, people who say such things show that they're looking for a homeland of their own. Well, if they'd been thinking of the country they left, Haran, Ur of the Chaldees, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. And then remarkably, it says, a heavenly one. Do You see what the inspired writer of this letter is doing in these verses. He knows that the people he's writing to are being sorely tempted to turn their backs on full-fledged faith in Christ and faithfulness to God because it seems to them that God is not being faithful to his promises to bless and to save and to protect and provide for them. And that is the struggle that so many of us face From time to time in crucial ways. It doesn't feel like, it doesn't seem like God is blessing and caring and loving me like the promises of his word would have led me to expect. And in these verses, the writer's point is this. Do not misunderstand how God is going to keep his promises. And in particular, don't be confused about time, the timing of God's ultimate blessing and salvation. A final salvation is ahead for everyone who maintains real faith and faithfulness to God. But don't get the timing wrong. That's where the prosperity preachers are way, way off. Because even Abraham dies, still trusting, still waiting. Next generation dies, still trusting, still waiting. And you'd be tempted to say, come on, God. How many more times are we going to have to let you off the hook until you realize that even Abraham, who didn't have nearly the revelation that we now have, Abraham ultimately, and he didn't understand it nearly as much, but he knew there is a city out there whose architect and builder is God, and nothing like tent dwelling, this city has foundations. And so they lived in this life and in this world, not faked out by vanity fair, not faked out by the values of this life and this world. That's why John says, don't love this world. Or the things in it. Because this world and its lusts and system and values, it's on the way out. It's passing away. But the one who does the will of God and keeps treating God as God abides and remains forever. He has prepared a city for them. And to be honest, in my own life, but maybe especially as I counsel people. And as I just, it's like, where is the promise of God? Where's the fulfillment? Where's the help? Where's the relief? Where's the happiness? Where's the joy? And what I realize more and more from passage after passage, including this one, it is for sure ahead for you. But it is after this little while, which again, as I've said recently before, the little while, I used to think, well, maybe he means months. Maybe he... No, he means this earthly existence. After this little while, then you, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, arrive in that city where every promise is fulfilled. And every right and righteous longing is fully and truly met. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Because God is willing, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were willing to trust Him this much, not loving and being overly attached to the things of this world and not finding their identity and security in them, it says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Have you ever thought? Again and again at key times in both Old Testament and New Testament, when the supreme being identifies himself, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's worth something right there. He's prepared a city for them. And indeed he has. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea that represented chaos in that culture. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. Not the Jerusalem that would eventually show up in Canaan in the promised land in this fallen world that lies in the lap of the wicked one. I saw new Jerusalem. That's what Abraham was ultimately looking forward to coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making everything new. No more cancer. No more adulterous betrayal. No more terrorism. I'm making everything new. This new heavens, this new earth is the one where only righteousness will be at home, Peter said and echoed. Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, first and last letters of the Greek Alpha. I'm the whole story, and now I'm bringing it to its climax. The beginning and the end. And I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost, he who overcomes, that is, who remains a person of faith and faithfulness in the five ways we describe He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my child. And so, Hebrews 10, verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't abandon your faith and faithfulness to God. Did you know that throughout biblical history there was only a small remnant even among the professing people of God who've been for real real in faith and devotion and allegiance to God? Please, faithful remnant who are in the middle of us here, don't go with the trends that seem so popular and prevalent and pleasurable even no matter how many of the rest of the professing people of God Go that way. You continue to live in every way by the word of the God who is supreme. And in that faith and faithfulness, there will be a reward. That's what it says. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For yet in a very little while, the one is coming who will come and not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who are shrink back, who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And I know I'm going a little long the service I can, I will in the others, but anyway. Let me just finish with this. This is the truth, the only truth that can save you. And I don't only mean get you to heaven, although I mean that too. I mean in whatever addictions and evils and lies are dominating you, only these truths, all five of them, really embraced and then lived out, only this truth can heal you, can cure you, can save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we will take these words from your word and apply them, customize them to our own hearts and lives. That we will recognize you as the one and only true God, the way that you've disclosed yourself in scripture That we will gladly relate to you as supreme because that is what you are and that we'll do that always in accordance with your word trusting in your promises and paying attention to the timing not this life not this world but that world to come help us now to live in light of those great realities that faith gives substance to as we live a life of faith and faithfulness. We pray in the name of Christ, who was the author and perfecter and ultimate example of what it means to live this way. In his name, amen.